This time, we look at the forgotten dystopian classic, Logan's Run. And along the way, we ask, why do dystopian films want to take the fun out of reproduction? Why only keep humans alive until 30? And how did this film get lost in the shuffle? There is no sanctuary on this edition of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, true believers. Welcome back to another great episode of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. I am the, uh, the Sandman, Sean Michael Culp, and along with me, my friend and co-host. Well, you took what I was going to say, so now I am, I am the runner. Chris Rupp. <laughs> hey, runner. I mean, you could always be uh, Chris Rupp number 10 if you wanted or something. <laughs> I mean, I could, but then I and then I would have this weird existential crisis. Like, what did the other 10 Chris's before me have to deal with? Right. I wonder if, you know, that's a good question in this film. Why hasn't Logan 5 ever wondered where the other four Logans went? Yeah, part of the thing they talked about in this movie was the idea of reincarnation. And it's implied if you if you have that belief set that that memories from your past life are carried over into your current life, but yet nobody talks about that in Logan's Run, which I found to be fascinating that nobody really caught on to this idea. It's like, well, if we're reincarnated, are we really, though? I'm just surprised they were like, hey, I'm Jessica 27, and like they never wondered about number one where the other 26 went and number two like why didn't they ever change names <laughs> you know like how many jessicas are there well and god forbid there's another jessica in the city too because then that has to be like jessica a but the sixth iteration or something right exactly and for how crazy this uh dome is sex wise like what if one of the jessicas gets an std oh i got an std from jessica i don't remember which one and there's like 57 jessicas that'd just be yeah <laughs> and then just the guy has to look through his contacts or whatever and finds oh crap there's 17 different jessicas in here how do i know which one i could call oh crap this one died on the last carousel ride this one is from year 2071 good lord Oh, God. <laughs> well, on that oh, note, man. Logan's Run, everyone. Let's uh, provide you with a brief synopsis from our synopsis man, Chris Rupp. All right, let's take it away. So, in the year 2274, humanity enjoys a comfortable lifestyle in a dome city. And while it's accepted that after a person turns 30 years old, they are reincarnated for a new life, but those who know the reality run from the city in search of a new life. But when Officer Logan is assigned to go undercover, he instead finds love and hopes to spark a rebellion. Yeah, so that's uh, that's Logan's run in a in as brief as a of a nutshell as I can put it. Um, so yeah, it's um it's nice to kind of return to this era of filmmaking in the in the mid uh, early seventies here because obviously there's. We don't have the advantage of having computers here and everything has to be done practically or, you know, creative, creative animations or creative costumes or creative filmmaking techniques just allow you to get away from, you know, having to rely on fancy special effects gimmicks. These were these were the times definitely where they had to 
<laughs> really try to win you over with those costumes and everything. I think, though, there was a lot higher uh, suspension of disbelief, though. Right, yeah. Audiences were probably much smarter back in the 70s, and everything didn't have to be <laughs> explained to them. <laughs> True. Uh, did you find anything about uh, the director, Michael Anderson, of this film? I, I, just, I just know he did Around the World in 80 Days. Yeah, he did that, but then he also directed the original adaptation of uh, George Orwell's novel, 1984, oh. which came out in 1956. So he had a pretty, I want to say, stable career as a director. I don't want to say that he had a fantastic career. I mean, I mean, if you're directing films for 20, 30, even 40 years, that's that's a that's a remarkable achievement. Oh, hell yeah. To stick around for that long. I definitely agree. All right. And he's English, which is always, you know, it is what it is. With English directors, there's usually a hell load of nudity in the film. And surprise, it's the <laughs> 70s and there is a crap load of nudity in this film. I mean, really, there's only that one scene when uh, Logan and Jessica wander into, um, what do they call it, the, the, the pleasure room? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're, the pleasure room. <laughs> one... And then there's just like... Then there's just slow motion groping and you know, slow motion bouncing. So it, it's really more like a, it's like a precursor for Baywatch in that room there. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, right? It is very slow motion. What if like you didn't want to be groped? Would you slow motion move out of the way? Or? Yeah, that was very much like a, like Studio 54 without the cocaine feel of that room there. But very, uh, I don't know. I thought it was a unique idea for, yeah, I guess, pleasure rooms, man. There's no strip clubs in the future. I guess the strip clubs <laughs> are very slowed down. <laughs> yeah, all the strip clubs look like they're in a Michael Bay film. <laughs> yeah, very much so. The uh, screenplay of this film is also done by this man called David Zelag Goodman. I guess he's a playwright and a screenwriter, or he was back. He was pretty known in the '60s to the '80s. Yeah, I'm kind of looking at him now, and he had written um, a couple films for uh, Sam Peckinpah. Uh, one of them being Straw Dogs, and um, yeah, he wrote some, he wrote several films actually. But uh, I, I can't see anything past 1983 from him, though. Yeah, apparently his biggest pop, I guess, came from Lovers and Other Strangers. I I've never seen it. Apparently, it's by Cly Howard, whoever, or Cy Howard, in 1970, American romantic comedy. So if you know anything about it, uh, write in or, you know, let us know. Maybe we'll watch it one day. Yeah, most of the time, what producers will do is if they can't get any big name screenwriters, they'll they'll get um, a prominent playwright because they are, they're cheap and they, <laughs> they want to break into films at some point. <laughs> Amen to that. Because, yeah, our, our producer isn't really same guy. He's not really known for that much. I forget what I don't even who's this guy? Saul David. He I only see him. He did like Fantastic Voyage. That's kind of the only film I know that I've seen off of his filmography. I mean, but for the time, though, this film has a pretty decent budget. It was made. I mean, I've seen estimates between seven and eight million dollars, and that kind of puts it just for context, kind of puts it around you know thirty one, thirty two million dollars in in today's money. So it doesn't give you a ton of leeway. I mean, yeah. especially with a cast, but it's really more focusing on the production design and the special effects side for this film. Definitely, 
It would be a solid uh, indie film in modern times, or what our new age indie films would be called, low budget. Right. I guess Logan's Run is actually a book. Did you or a novel? Did you read it? Yeah, I uh, did not have time to read it before we're recording, but there there are some pretty major differences between what is put down uh, to paper and then what we see in this film adaptation. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the re- the original novel uh, was written by uh, William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson, and really the only two elements that are retained from the novel is that everybody dies at a set age and that Logan and his companion Jessica escape uh, from this dome city while they're being chased by another Sandman or the, the police officers of this era. Hmm. Those are really the only two things that are changed that are kept. <laughs> oh yeah. Cause yeah, the age is like 21 in the book. Right. And they, and they raise it to 30 so the producers could cast a, a wider array of extras because, I mean, obviously you don't want a bunch of kids running around set and yeah. there's a limited amount of time that those kids can actually work before they have to go off. So you can you can pretty much keep all the adults you want on set and torture them for as long as you want, as long as there's no children around. <laughs> right, you are. Those labor laws. <laughs> and speaking of <laughs> the actors hired, I know this film uh, is headlined by Michael York. Um, do you know anything about him? Have you seen anything with him? The only thing that I know Michael York from is he was Basil in the Austin Powers films. But that's all I've got on Michael York. All right. <laughs> Same. I've never. The only thing I have on him prior to Logan's run is that he had a supporting role in um, the film Cabaret. But okay. that's really kind of it. The it is term in terms of the book on Michael York. <laughs> Yeah, this cast is pretty, uh, it's a bunch of like really no-name people, particularly back in the day, too. I mean, do you have to have a pretty solid history of bit actors and actresses to really understand this cast? I mean, we've got Richard Jordan as Francis Seven. Um, This was one of his early film roles, but he would also appear in Dune and The Hunt for Red October. Um, Jenny Agutter plays Jessica Six, uh, another early film role. This is going to be a trend that we're going to see uh, with the cast here. Um, she had appeared in An American Werewolf in London, which is a good, which is a great horror slash comedy film uh, with amazing uh, makeup effects in it. But she's also appeared um, in The Avengers and Captain America the Winter Soldier. She was one of the, the council members that appear in the shadows as they're uh, grilling Nick Fury on his choices throughout those films. Okay, okay. I know Farrah Fawcett was in this film, a young Farrah Fawcett. Yeah, this is when she was still being billed as Farrah Fawcett Majors because she was on TV at this time. She was on two pretty big shows at the time. She was on The Six Million Dollar Man and Charlie's Angels. And for both those shows, she was billed as Farrah Fawcett Majors because I think she was married to um, Lee Majors at the time and they that's why you have the name and that's why she even receives prominent billing for Logan's run even though she plays a pretty a small role yeah. at the end of it yeah she's not really in it too much and then we yeah. we got a uh, Roscoe Lee Brown I guess he was he's the only African-American in the film and he plays the voice of a robot <laughs> 
but apparently as an actor he he that was like his thing he didn't like playing uh stereotypical black roles so it's interesting that you know he they cast him as the role of a robot but i guess his voice is pretty distinct so yeah from what i was able to find on him he was a very accomplished voice actor i mean especially in the 80s and 90s and I mean, you've probably heard his voice on cartoons that we've watched as kids. I mean, he was on the real Ghostbusters, Batman, the animated series and Spider-Man. So, I mean, just those three shows alone. I mean, that's something you can be proud of. And if you want to take the rounding out the cast is Sir Peter Alexander. Oh, boy. Ustinov? Ustinov? (laughs) Uh, uh, Let's just say uh, Ustinov. Ustinov. (laughs) Ustinov. He's an English actor as well. I guess he's kind of like the name, maybe the guy that kind of gave the clout to the film, I would say. Yeah, because before this, he had won two Academy Awards um, for uh, supporting roles in Spartacus, which I mean, I can't sing the praises of that film enough. It's an amazing film. And um, I'm going to butcher this name. Um, uh, Top Copy, I think it is. (laughs) I mean, I hope I'm saying that right. I mean, I, I have never seen that film, so <laughs> I, I don't know what it's about. I mean, but it's it's no small feat to win two Academy Awards. So, I mean, I mean, you got to be uh, a decent actor if you're winning Academy Awards. Oh, definitely. And he, he definitely shows his chops in this film. To me, it was definitely a highlight of Logan's run. Yeah, definitely, um, in spite of his age, almost has like this this innocence to him. You know, he he's we just find him taking shelter in an abandoned government building, taking care of a bunch of cats. And it's this this weird, almost like instinct that we have uh, as audience members to to protect this person, because, you know, if they bring him back to the Dome City and try to show him off, they're going to push him in that carousel and try to kill him. Yeah, (laughs) they're just a bunch of maniacs in that dome. They don't know. They're not awoke. They're not awakened to uh, the real world. Uh, do you have any information of how this film got off the ground at all? Well, from what I found, the, it took a long time to get this film from page to screen. It, there was there were a lot of issues during the screenwriting process in terms of what sort of views that the producers and screenwriters and directors wanted to take in terms of the tone of the film, but then they also wanted to try and incorporate a lot of symbolism of real world issues into the plot. Now I couldn't find what sort of real world issues they were talking about. So, but during the 1970s, it was probably more like the free love, yeah. uh, more of the free love movement, sort of, uh, you know, loosening ideals um, in terms of, you know, a political system and then also kind of buying into, you know, the nihilism and existential crisis that people were having at the time, because at the time when this film came out, 1976, the Watergate scandal was still fresh in everybody's mind. And there was just this persistent sort of dread and mistrust in the government uh, systems of the United States. Okay, that's pretty good. But the film was originally in the hands of producer George Powell, and he had an offer on the table of $200,000 to sell the film. However, he wouldn't accept anything less than $350,000. So he gave up the rights to produce the film. And then this is where we get producer Saul David to step in. And he immediately authorized a rewrite. He is 
number one priority is with no matter what he had to do, he was going to get this movie yeah. on screen. He he raised the age from twenty one to thirty, as we've mentioned before, mm-hmm. and hired some of the best special effects artists he could get to create the effects we see on screen. Absolutely, and I know uh, with this film they made use of wide angle lenses, which at the time weren't that available. And it became the first film to use the Dolby stereo 70 millimeter prints, which I don't know Jack about cameras, but (laughs) Hey, if that means something to you, there's some, uh, you know, some fun facts for you. Yeah. 70 millimeter just refers to how like actually how wide that the film, uh, film strip is. So, I mean, bigger film, you, know, you you allow it to take in more of the scenery and you know it's a bigger projector and ultimately it's a it's a bigger screen so the the film was designed to be shown in a way in in the biggest possible format at the time now obviously they didn't have IMAX screens in the mid 70s but it's you have the most advanced sound uh, of the time you also have the most advanced film format so the, the, there's a lot of care and money that went into presenting the film in its in the biggest possible way. Mm-hmm. They definitely they invested a lot into this because they wanted it to be a big hit. Well, yeah, and you can definitely tell in terms of how great the special effects look for the time, and then also, I mean, the, the just the design of everything. I mean, I I read that they that nine entire sound stages were used to build the sets and create the look of the film and that miniature that we see in the city as the title cards kind of roll through that was the i read that that was the largest of its kind at the time they built it yeah and it's and it's sleek because when i was starting to get into the film i i personally enjoy um you know miniatures and all that and so seeing it it was pretty it blew me away seeing how great they did of a job, even when they showed the scenes where they transitioned Logan going to the Cubs. I mean, it with the little car going, I, I just I was pretty amazed at how great of a job they did, how much work and care they put into the sets. It's uh, it, it definitely set the stage, I think, set the precedent for future films. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, modern audiences are pretty, um, they're pretty able to tell you know what's a miniature and what isn't but it's definitely sort of this lost art of filmmaking that is definitely become de-emphasized in the age of new computer graphics and you know whatever computer mapping program is being made at the time so i mean hopefully we can get a return to great looking miniatures at some point yeah because only a few directors actually use them nowadays yeah, I know Christopher Nolan is one of them. He uses, he tries to use the miniatures if possible, but uh, I know that the James Bond films especially use miniatures, and quite famously in a film previous film we discussed here on the podcast, Moonraker, they mm-hmm. they built a giant space station <laughs> miniature and then took twelve gauge shotguns to it to <laughs> um, simulate it being destroyed, which is still some of the best scenes, some of the best. Uh, movies like destruction of scenes and you know work that i've ever seen in my life which i will say though logan's run they destroy the hell out of some of these sets and they do a miraculous job oh yeah it's uh, as we said i I don't think we can sing the praises of the special effects crew enough for the work they did in this film because it's some of the most impressive i've seen for a film of this era definitely 
So how do you want to talk any more about the differences from the books or the film, or do you want to like jump into this some of the some of our uh, highlights that we want to chat about? You know, let's get into uh, let's get into the highlights of Logan's run here. All right, and I think it's important to discuss leading off the sort of the deeper dive into the film is how exactly did we get here? I mean, where the humanity or what's left of it is walled off in this giant dome city. We have uh, this arbitrary rule that people can't live until they're past 30. They're given all sorts of whatever physical pleasure as they could ever want. So how did we go? F- how does society get to this point? I mean, what, what went wrong to necessitate closing people off and literally and in in a in a physical sense as well that's a good question i would say how we got here is i think maybe some type of plague or something was happening maybe a cancer or maybe perhaps a world war or a nuclear war and they decided whoever the elite were that it was going to be like let's save the young ones you know let's have the self-sustainable dome where 30 years is the max i guess yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, I, I I'll agree with you on the idea that maybe like a pandemic or some type of illness was sweeping through the general population because you don't build something like this. You don't build a massive structure like this just for just for the hell of it. You do you do it to protect people, to shelter them, to keep them inside, and then you fill it with all all the worldly pleasures that you can think of mm-hmm. to make them forget that they're that there is something out there that's trying to kill them. Much, yeah, it's kind of like Wally in a sense, like you having the spaceship in the sky. But the curious part is, why only cut it off at thirty? It doesn't really make sense to me. You know, like why thirty? <laughs> does does life end at thirty? I'm 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 wondering because I'm I'm about to turn thirty in May. So, uh, yeah, I mean we're both on the cusp of you know being. 30 years old i mean my birthday's coming up a bit soon yours you just said is in a few months as well and it, 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 i don't know it's difficult to sort of pinpoint the exact reason why this cutoff would be at 30 maybe it's just that they they don't want to care for an aging population or maybe they just they don't have the the ability or the tools available to sort of deal with any Sort of not only not just physical medical problems, but in terms of like maybe mental problems, maybe I mean, because, you know, I'm 29 years old and I, you know, I find myself now in therapy and a lot of people that I know that are my age or a bit older have have sought out counseling around this age as well. So maybe this is also just a society that's not comfortable with sort of exploring what makes them tick or exploring the complexities of anxiety or depression or any other sort of um, uh, mental well-being issue. It, it is very possible. I think so, because most of these people, like you said, live carefree. And perhaps whoever decided to build the dome, maybe they figured, all right, we're going to go so the best way we can set up a perfect, quote unquote, perfect best life for everyone to live in for future generations is to only allow them to live through the peak years. Ideally, peak, quote unquote, is, you know, birth through 30. 
because that's when you're at your physical best. And then anything after that, I guess whoever made this <laughs> decided, let's just kill them all off, you know, and use their body to help turn into fuel. So we keep this baby regenerating. Yeah. Live free, do whatever you want until, until you're 30. And then it's your civic duty to go into the carousel and have this elaborate light show. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you literally go out in flames and explosions like a firework. I mean, it's not a bad idea because you basically just get to live in excess and you never have to uh, live with any of the tragedies that you put on your body. You know, you can live your 20s, have as much sex as you want, eat as much as you want, do as many drugs as you want, and you know you're going to die at 30, so screw it. I mean, it is a very live-in-the-moment society. Yeah, you never have to think with about anything. You don't have to deal with the consequences of anything. And even, I mean, we see even like a precursor to Tinder with people going in and out of the network just for the purposes of sex. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I started laughing as soon as Logan brings Jessica in his apartment and he tries to take her to away. He goes, let's have sex now. <laughs> I know. But low key, though, it shows how woke this future is, because when she said no to him and rebuffed him, he was he said, oh, do you prefer women? So I was kind of uh, blown away by, oh, my gosh, this future doesn't care about if you're a homosexual or et cetera. You know, they just they accept whatever your preferences are. It could be it could be the this society is that woke or it could just be how fragile Logan's ego is like, oh, you don't want to sleep with me. Therefore, you must be a lesbian. Yeah, right. That is another. I did think that same thing, too. And he was pretty aggressive with, oh, let's have sex. He kept trying to coerce her. I was I was thinking to myself, oh, God, is this going to turn into one of those films? Yeah, then immediately after Jessica leaves, I mean, she's clearly in distress because one of her friends was killed in Carousel. And then Francis, which they have this weird sort of a bromance in the film, he brings home two women and then Logan, I don't know, pops like a bath bomb in the living room and then takes one of the women away. I, it, maybe there was drugs or something. I, I, I figured it was drugs. I mean, it, it could be that, but there's no other mention of... You know, you know, drug use. You know, in in the film, there's no sort of uh, fictional drug that keeps everybody happy. Um, like we saw, like um, I don't know if you've ever read Brave New World, but there is a drug that circulated amongst that population. It's called soma. But there's okay. there's nothing like that that's mentioned here, at least from what I I saw in Logan's Run. Maybe it's just whenever they have sexy time, they just do it with paints and fun smoke. <laughs> as we noticed with the uh, groping center, you know, it was really artistic in there as well. So maybe that's just the future, baby. Super psychedelic. Yeah, I mean, but it's it's hard to exactly describe this society as a hedonistic society, because it certainly is that. But I would also describe it more as an equitable society, because there is no mention of income disparity everybody seems to live lavishly they have they don't have a care in the world um really the only sort of dissent that we get from the population are the people who run and then this this subsection that lives in the city that they have their own walled off sort of anarchist zone um that's run they call them the cubs 
And those are kids that before they reach age 16, because I guess at age 16, your hand turns green and then you're shuffled into the next chapter where you're in like the main dome. You can start interacting with the adults. Yeah, it's (laughs) and I think that interaction that Logan has with, I guess, the maybe the cub leader was great because even though they, they want to build themselves as, you know, we're tough kids and, you know, we'll stab you and blah, blah, blah. I mean, they're they're still children. They're- yes. Yeah. And the kid was so it, I love that scene because it shows just how it reminded me of being that young, like 15, 14. And you think you're so bad. And I cut that uh, Sandman up yesterday and Logan calls his bluff <laughs> he fires the weapon and all the kids scatter because they don't want to defend this kid that's about to turn 16 and get a bail on him so i mean that was that was just such a great scene showing um the naivety of kids in addition to that i think it also kind of explores just how fragile the society really is i mean if you think about it i mean the age cutoff is 30 years old and you have to think that this city, this population, is run by people that are under 30 years old. People people whose brains are not yet fully developed and all their idiosyncrasies or their personality fully formed, these are the kind of people that are making the decisions. Yep. And that's more terrifying that- than anything else I saw in this movie. <laughs> I mean, then we have now come to our answer, Chris, of why you only live to 30, because it's a bunch of young people that want to live forever or that don't care about dying because they don't think of dying. So they just want to live in the now. And um, you can find some parallels to the our modern society when viewing Logan's Run, because our our culture is very geared towards young people, whether it's fashion, movies, even um music particularly music it's all geared towards in like the hip-hop and pop scene most kids are on tiktok or they want to hear what's in and what's cooking now and if older people like you you and myself quote-unquote older we listen to like songs from the 2000s (laughs) you know the 20 the 2000s and people are like oh man that's such an older song i'm like what i listened that crap 10 years ago but it's just it's it's how our culture is we're very focused on the young ones yeah i think you know you're old when your favorite album as a teenager all of a sudden is two dollars on itunes and it's it's yep (laughs) no you're absolutely right it's it's also it's this over-reliance that our society has on technology in general because we we now we're in the advent of everything every device that we have being smart in some way you have smart watches smartphones you have smart homes i mean eventually we're we're on the path towards getting smart cars even the places we go to for to shop i mean we were we're having the advent of smart shopping um amazon is now opening like pretty much it's contactless shopping in their in their new grocery stores and it's it's this weird uh, over-reliance that we have on it right now i mean is technology an aid and is it helpful yes in certain situations but eventually we have to learn to scale back our reliance on it because it can be used for nefarious purposes and and we we're seeing that all the time especially in this ongoing pandemic of you know technological scams and just scams overall just 
on the rise at this time. Absolutely. Technology is a great tool to utilize, but it shouldn't be a crutch, something that you need. Because if you don't know how to do certain things, such as preparing meals, changing a tire, balancing your checkbook, various ways to take care of yourself and live life, how are you ever going to, you know? Right. And, you know, as we move on into the future as well, and, and one of the additional parallels that's easy to draw is is healthcare for an aging population and how do we care for this generation that's just going to get older and the resources that we are willing to devote to making sure that people are able to continue living long and and living healthy. And I do think that's a good question you pose with healthcare. Technology does provide us the access so we can live longer. But the problem is with a culture so focused on young people as older people, you kind of are pushed to the side. And if you're not young, you, we really don't care. That's why, as particularly if you're like in your 70s, 80s, and 90s, you're kind of just thrust, all right, let's put grandpa in the retirement home, you know? And there's like a lot of old people that are just so lonely as you get older. So it's like, yeah, I get to live longer, but I'm going to be alone. So is that really something to applaud or, you know, look forward to? Right. And the in the current systems that we as a society have in place right now are eventually going to fail. I mean, Medicaid and Medicare are going to run out of money at some point. The The baby boomers are just going to get older and they're going to require more care, more resources, more time to make sure that they stay healthy. And mm-hmm. it's just a general state in our society as well. It's it's certainly an advancement in medical science that people are able to live longer and healthier, but then we're also regressing a bit as well because we don't we don't place an emphasis on on wellness until it it's absolutely necessary, which is it's just an unfortunate aspect of of you know, we want people to be healthy and I think we were talking about this a couple of days ago and it's <laughs> It, the movie in itself is almost it makes an indictment on our healthcare system is that we want people to be healthy and we want them to have insurance but please for the love of god do not cost us any sort of money yeah you, you get it but don't use it because god forbid you need to actually utilize it it's it's a scam in in one of the the big parallels that I was able to draw to it in Logan's run is this idea of 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 policing because Logan's profession in this film is they don't call him a police officer they call him a sandman and their their job is to they call it retiring runners or people who who want to avoid the carousel uh, ceremony and in they don't even know why they're doing it. I think they've been they were at I think Francis and Logan ask each other like why do we chase them down like what's the point of it why can't we just let them go and then Logan is sent on this bogus mission to find sanctuary even in and then in the course of his mission he finds out sanctuary isn't real it was this mistake that the the main computer calculated and it's Mm -hmm. I think it, it looking at it through today's lens, it, it really it, it raises a question of like, well, what sort of role are the police supposed to play 
in today's society and what are we going to do to reevaluate and make sure that 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 we execute that in regards to the film or in regards to our society i think in our in our society i mean it, it it's a complicated it's certainly a complicated issue but I, I think it's important to you know ask the question of what sort of role do we want the police to play in today's world i think that's a good question uh in our society i'm, I'm seeing a shift in one of my uh social work classes there's an alderman and they actually push legislation on the south side to have police officers not show up to mental health calls and it actually got approved in their town i can't remember the freaking town but actually instead of police officers they send social workers to respond to a lot of mental illness because a lot of calls with the police can be uh well potentially in theory is what they're theorizing that some of the violence can be mitigated if we send social workers instead of cops or if social workers come along because they've tried teaching the police how to de-escalate situations but due to the negative stigmas that police have in our society particularly in low-income minority populations it just never works because most people that have run-ins with the police they just don't react you know it's it's really hard to de-escalate a situation when you get pulled over and you see the flashing freaking lights and the gun so i think hopefully um that will take more prominence you know where if we could reshape cops so that it's not so authoritarian and more of like a compassionate element yeah, and uh, I, I 100% agree with that. I think actually San Francisco is rolling out that program in one of their in one of their five wards, and they plan to roll it out in the other parts of the city within the next year. But I think that's a I think I forget the exact statistic, but I think you're if you are having a mental health crisis and the police are called, I think you're something like 70% more likely to be shot in that situation if the police are called, and it, it's without a doubt. Yeah, and it's and I I hundred percent agree with that. That it's it's, I mean, is it is one solution going to fix everything? No, it's it's certainly a big, it's a big problem that requires a lot of different solutions, and it, it's something that's kind of outside of the scope of of today's episode. But it, it's important to have <laughs> it's important to have those conversations in, at a community level, and certainly at an administrative level and a legislative level to to make sure that that reevaluating the role of police officers in a community is is a vital thing. I mean they they are do police officers have a dangerous job? They absolutely do. Um nobody's saying they don't. They have they have one of the toughest jobs there is, but we want to it's important to discuss as a society like how can we make their burden a bit um less, I guess is the word. Yeah. Because they suffer, too, from stress and PTSD. I mean, I could only imagine seeing someone commit suicide or something, the toll it has on an officer as well. And a lot of people don't think about that. And I, I definitely agree with you. It's never, you should never reach a point where you think something can't be fine-tuned, you know? It, that's the That's the perks of always having programs is always fine-tuning and changing the process and tweaking it and with police i definitely agree with you they've i think we haven't 
reevaluated their powers for so long. And thankfully, now it's coming to light. And hopefully, we can make some progress in the next couple of years. Yeah. And then, <laughs> but it's, it's weird to see Logan in this film get this mission to find out where Sanctuary is and report back and then become so disillusioned with what's going on that he runs away from the city. He forgets any sort of um, you know, dreams or aspirations of finding Sanctuary, falls in love with Jessica, and then comes back and destroys the very thing he thought he was protecting. Right. I... Well, I viewed it as kind of the allegory of the cave, you know, with Plato. He, and that's pretty much, I felt that this film kind of was that example of that most of the people living in it, they were just seeing, if you know the allegory of the cave, they were just seeing the sticks, you know, the shadows. Hey, we live 30 years, get to have fun, blah, blah, blah. But if you actually escape the dome, you can see the world for what it truly is and you can live long, you can get an education, you can grow and change so much as a human. And him and Jessica, Logan and Jessica meeting the old man, escaping, going through all the challenges and finally seeing like the Constitution and Washington and Lincoln and having all those great compliment comments about Lincoln. Look at his face. He's so old and all that. There was that man who never told a lie. Um, that was so to me great to see because it was, it was that it satisfied that it was enlightening. He was enlightened. He, he escaped the cave and then he came back to enlighten the other people and in turn destroyed the dome. And so everyone could escape and be free. Very yeah, 70s-esque, man. A hundred percent agree. And it's it, I, I I thought that, that this whole idea of sanctuary was some sort of conspiracy that was constructed by the city leaders to sort of root out any dissidents and get them and just get them out of the way or have them killed. And it's mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it it just reminded me of like all those insidious conspiracies, you know, like um I think the the big one out there right now is QAnon and it's it's a I mean there there are some there's fun conspiracies you know there's harmless ones like oh we didn't really you know land on the moon or the Loch Ness monster or things like that and then we get to the sort of destructive ones like the satanic panic and QAnon and Pizzagate and things like that and this this idea of sanctuary just reeked of that this theory or this movement that just is designed to tear people apart and make sure that people stay compliant in some weird insidious way. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree. And that was the point in this film. It ties definitely into that, that sanctuary is just, (laughs) it's the computer wanted to eliminate sanctuary because it didn't want anyone else to run or think the idea to run. And that's why it was so great when the computer exploded, because it couldn't compute the fact that it was wrong, that Sanctuary didn't exist. Yeah, it was it's like, what do you mean? Like, I'm never wrong. Like, eh, yeah, you're wrong here. <laughs> it literally blew its mind. <laughs> well, part of that conspiracy, if it was one, was that these people try to leave the city, but then they encounter Box, this yes. this horrible you know, killer robot that takes people and freezes them because it ran out of a food source. So that was my, I was kind of confused with the film. That was where I hit a little, wait, what? Because Box, 
I wasn't certain if the computer knew of Box because Box seems like it's fail safe, right? Like anyone that is going to escape and they make it through all the, you know, the tunnels and everything. Box is there. He's the last resort to stop runners. So I was kind of confused when the uh, computer didn't know, you know, of Box and all that. It could be that Box was one of those old, um, like a non-automated process from the computer. And that when the city Uh like became fully automated, then they kind of forgot about it. It's like, oh, oh, wait, we have. Oh wait, we have this sort of janitorial robot out there and now it's just killing people and freezing them. That freezes everything. Maybe he was part of like the ice sculptor <laughs> in like the winter season. They roll box out, he, you know, dusts up the wall, gets a couple penguins in there, and then they roll him back in the closet. <laughs> I mean, I gotta admit though to that that sequence really freaked me out when you see Box just coldly explaining that he froze all these people because he couldn't find any sources of protein. And then we see this macabre museum exhibit of all the people that he's killed. Yeah. Include, and even like penguins. I don't know if you saw that, like the walrus that he froze, all the birds and everything. That man, he loved freezing things. <laughs> yeah, freaking Box, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris... What now? So <laughs> the city, after they escaped and they made it through box, right? They encountered the old man and their whole lives were shook. And they realized, oh my God, sanctuary isn't there. They ended up killing the other Sandman that followed them out. But then they decided, Logan 5 decided to return because he wanted to save the rest of the people. I mean, the city's destroyed. I mean, I mean, I don't know where they go from here. I mean, the old man has the old man has no clue in terms of how society was constructed before this dome showed up. So, and they don't exactly want to go back to the old ways of killing people when they hit thirty. But like, I the old man isn't going to have any sort of idea as to how to lead a society and rebuild. In a, what's essentially no. going to be a colony with these people and so it's just I don't know maybe they, maybe they just resort to eating each other because they don't know what to do well that was my question too because when they met the old man he is kind of crazy I mean he literally lives with cats and he names three of them he, they have three names I think his first name second name and then he says the third name that the cats call themselves in their cat language that humans will never understand I mean and he talks like he's he's pretty insane like he they Logan even references to how nuts this old man is I mean he he says like they ate all the mice I mean this guy is pretty crazy I I agree with you where I don't I didn't know like what their plan was after showing everyone that this old man exists because he didn't seem to have that many tools. I mean, they didn't have any fish, right? He said he fished out. They didn't have any food, pretty much any food to eat. The old man seemed like he was ready. He was preparing to die. So I was kind of lost at what where they go from there, you know? Right, and it's... I honestly don't know like what the plan is going to be because it ends on the freeze frame with Logan and Jessica hugging each other and the city exploding around them. And for <laughs> just for the sake of the story, I'm going to assume that that was the only sort of dome city left in the country. So now it's 
Like, you don't have anywhere else to go. And it's not like you're just going to, like, know how to farm and hunt and kill and do all those things. You know, it's, I think that's why I like the ending too, because it's the perfect representation of young people. We do the thing, we get the thing out, we get what we want, but then we're so short-sighted, we never think long-term, oh my God, what are we going to do after this? And they're pretty much stuck there. I guess maybe cannibalism will be at a rise. Or maybe if that's where like a sequel film would come in, where maybe, hey, there is another Dome City or whatever, you know, other people out there. I mean, well, it's hard to say. (laughs) It it is hard to say. Yeah. Because the film ends on this very ambiguous uh, cliffhanger in spite of, you know, I mean, in spite of Logan accomplishing what he wanted to do. And it's yeah. just, it's his, it's not like the ending of The Graduate, but it's just if you're a smart enough viewer, you're going to ask yourself, like, well, where do these, what do these people do now? Yeah. yeah well, that's, that's why I love 70s films, because they just end. <laughs> So many of them just end. It's like Soylent Green. Soylent Green is people! And then it ends. And you're just like, wait, what happens now? But who knows? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, the 70s, how we love you so much. Indeed, indeed. And speaking of that, uh, so this is, like we've said, 70s film. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask the question to you because we've reviewed like Westworld. Um, we will review the regular Star Wars, the first ones. How do you feel reviewing these 70s films? Because older cinematography and movies, particularly like this one, the sets and everything is pretty noticeable. The graphics aren't like, you know, nowadays. There were several scenes where it does look cheesy. Are you able to still get invested into these types of movies like you are in the modern films or... Is it hard to suspend the disbelief? I think if you know what you're getting into, heading into um, a film like this that came out in the seventies, it's 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 easy to buy into, and it's 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 easy to write off the 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 look of the film and the special effects is like, oh, this is corny. And it's like, well, this is what they could do at the time. It doesn't make it a bad film. I mean, is it, can it be swimming in cheese? Yeah, sure, it can to any sort of, any type of viewer, but you have to know what to expect heading into a film like this. Mm -hmm. And it is tough because not every film, as much as we wish most films could be like Jurassic Park and still look beautiful 30 years later, I mean, it's just, it's a really tough thing to accomplish with movies, particularly in the 70s. Well, yeah, because there's been other films before this that look, I mean, better. I mean, I recently watched the the first Godfather film, which was made a few years before. And I mean, that still looks amazing, even almost 50 years later. But it's it's apples and oranges. I mean, that one's a gangster film. And this is a a science fiction film set 250 years of the future. So it's hard to compare the two. Every film is going to be different. But it's absolutely I mean, Logan's run is what it is. I mean, it was made with the limitations at the time, and it was made with a pretty decent budget. And for all intents and purposes, this still looks pretty good um, in terms of on-screen quality. I agree. And I think Logan's run, to me, their progression with um, special effects 
really set the tone for later films in the late 70s and 80s that I think they took off with like piggyback from with their miniatures and models like because even Star Wars that came out a year after I feel like George Lucas took what Logan's run did with the miniature sets and just amplified it and learned from the mistakes they made, you know, did different camera angles and used the special effects in a little bit more um, forgiving fashion than Logan's run did. But I definitely think this is like a flagpole for like a shift in the time for cinematography and cinema. Yeah, this certainly got the ball rolling in terms of bigger and better special effects and science fiction films. But it's it's interesting to note that this film kind of gets lost in a shuffle in terms of what we consider to be great science fiction film. I mean, yeah. Yeah. is this I mean, before we started on this project, was this anywhere near like any any sort of, you know, oh, I have to watch this or have you heard of it but you didn't really have an interest in watching it? Like what like what was your perception of this film before before we before we uh, recorded today? So I remember Logan's run. It was on Netflix either last year or at the beginning of this past year on Netflix. And it was marketed. And I remember seeing the previews, like the trailers, and it looked pretty cool to me. And I, I, I saw it online, you know, best sci-fi films, and it was in some list. So I always wanted to watch it. And I think what happened was is I tried watching it twice on Netflix, but I just never fully invested I was always doing something else and whenever I got to the carousel scene with you know the bodies flying around and exploding and the crowds all like yeah I just was like all right I this is two seventies, man they were on hella drugs and I would always turn it off yeah it's <laughs> if you don't like I said if you don't know what to expect heading into it you'll be a bit uh, lost uh, and confused definitely Definitely. With that being said, what do you what did you like out of this film? What do you think worked and what didn't work? And we can throw our lens flares and red shirts into it. This as well. Um, You know, what really works for this film is the characters themselves. These are these are characters that are ultimately very easy to connect with both on the surface level and at a much deeper level because when we first meet logan i mean we we just see this sort of um carefree police officer sandman if you will and he just wants you know like a casual hookup and then on the other side of that we see jessica when we first meet her she's very sad at the loss of one of her friends but then we also see that she is a determined individual and she's not written in a way that makes her a damsel in distress she's a very integral part of of logan's journey to escape from the city and ultimately they fall in love with each other that's a far cry from their first interaction but these are very good characters that help to drive the story forward Mm -hmm. that's good that's good i i'll definitely agree with you there i think jessica she was written very well um, which is kind of, I, w- I wouldn't say, lo- it is surprising, you know, with 70s films. I guess we're kind of lost, for me, I always assume old films are misogynistic. But her character was great. She really kicked ass in this movie, character-wise. I, You know, I felt, I agree with you. The characters were awesome. Uh, it took a little bit getting used to. 
but the old man was great. I thought the actor that portrayed him was phenomenal. The characters were really in it. I felt, you know, the scene work like you, um, like we've talked about was just great with the models, the explosions and just it all somehow it all worked. And if you, and I bought in, you know, with the weird carousel, I guess the third time through was kind of like, wow, look at how crazy this is. You know, seeing these guys fly around and explode the concept alone that in the city, once you hit 30, your send off is you fly up and, you know, explode to a greater whatever the next part of life is. To me, that was pretty that was a fascinating concept that nowadays movies, I don't think would be able to handle it the same way as straightforward, you know, as they play in this movie, whereas I feel like modern Logan's run would be so glossed over with special effects. The film would be so much longer and it would be so focused. It would be, be like the new Blade Runner. It would be like a 30 minute story stretched out to like three hours. Well, it's possible that that could happen, um, but you never know. <laughs> yeah, but speaking of people exploding though, did you have a red shirt? So actually, my red shirt was either box. Or the lady that, it was like a tie. It was like box. And then also the female when um, the runner that Logan 5 saves. Instead of, you know, shooting her down, he gives her like the gas thing to explode and run away. But then she ends up getting brutally murdered by whoever, what, Francisco or the runner that was following him. I just felt with her character, Logan made this turn as a character to save her instead of kill her. And then she gets brutally murdered anyways. It was kind of like, oh, damn, you know, it shows Logan's changed. But I would have been curious to see where she would lead off. And then also with Box, he was just such a fascinating character, but only on the screen for such a short time. It was like, damn, this really felt too rushed. It's like, oh, I wanted to see more of this weird robot. Right. How about you? You know, uh, I'm going to have to go with the doctor that uh, Jessica <laughs> and Logan meet at New U because we... It's again. It's the same problem that we just ran into, or that we that we will run into with Box later on in the film. But we we meet this doctor for all of about five minutes before he tries to dice up Logan in that laser chamber of his. Mm-hmm. You know, at first he he puts on you know polite airs and is very affable and willing to help Logan, but then he's all like, "Well, he's a Sandman, so I'm gonna go dice him up real quick." Was it wasn't he the guy? He said too, like he's aged out. Um, he just keeps doing plastic surgery to make him look so young. Cause I know in the book, he's a different character. Like his, I think his like transmitter is malfunctioning. So he's like actually like 40 something, but because of plastic surgery, he can pass as like a 25 year old. I didn't catch on that. I mean, to me, the whole idea of the life clocks was just arbitrary anyway, because they, they, <laughs> Because they're all controlled by the computer, so ultimately it doesn't matter anyway. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I, I never, I, I didn't really kind of pay attention to, you know, that aspect of the film. Fair enough. For lens flare, what do you got for me? You know, I have to for my lens flare. I have to pick the the idea of Francis as a villain, and. <laughs> I certainly admire his persistence in tracking down Logan and Jessica through um, into that into the city. But he got through the tunnels and that ice cave. He followed them for miles. But 
you know, personally, I would have placed um, the fight between Logan and Francis um, to when they break back into the city um, at the end, because placing it where they did in the in the Senate building kind of gives this the film like a false climax. And since the ending overall is a tad anticlimactic, I feel like moving that fight a bit closer to the end would have given the film a maybe not a true climax, but at least some semblance to it. So I'm I'm definitely gonna agree with you there. I he was almost gonna be my red shirt as well because it just felt his character was kind of wasted with that death. You know, I definitely agree with you. He should have. I mean, they used the computer's death at the end to be kind of like you know the end of all the explosion of the dome but i feel like like you're saying the end because he had more of of a development with logan than the computer so i'm gonna agree with you Mm. Uh, my lens flare actually (laughs) with that my lens flare is the cave the ice cave exploding i just couldn't get over the really cheesy garbage graphics of the cave exploding in on itself it just looks so freaking bad and i know it's it was like new technology with quote unquote like you know hologram them running two film strips over each other layering but it was just so bad it really took me out of the movie I just, I, I just wish, because it was so weird. It was like, you could tell that Logan and Jessica, the actors, they're like, all right, now look scared. Like, something's falling. And you're about to, you know, the cave's imploding. But then, like, you see the rocks fall. And it just it just showed it was, you know, product special effects of the time. It would have it been better if they had the actors run out and then actually destroyed the set instead of having whatever the hell that was that I saw. So that was my lens flare. <laughs> uh, so no film is without things that bother anybody let's just say that <laughs> no no film is without speaking of which what is your toxic fandom oh man this this one i mean there were there were a few things to pick from but this one this one kind of bothered me a bit because it's at the very beginning of the film so courtesy of imdb that in the opening scene logan is looking at two newborns both are lying face down as the scene ends, the one on the right is now on his back. <laughs> so somebody had a problem with how the babies were rolling around in the beginning of the film and took to the internet to voice their displeasure with that's, babies. That's so stupid. <laughs> I mean, they're babies. Like, what, what's it's like? So what? The baby is on his back. Like, is, is it inconceivable to you that a baby could? potentially roll over like what do you what's the issue here it was some like it was like someone that studies you know newborns they don't have the strength to turn over on their back Uh, yeah somebody was all like babies can't do that i have to let the people on the internet know oh thank you toxic fandom man i never knew that uh my uh toxic fandom uh, courtesy of imdb as well is jessica in the cave she slips, so she slips and falls, and her underwear shows. So there's two. When they take off their clothes for some reason in the cave, which I still don't understand why they got naked. That's why I'm saying it's maybe like because of the English or whatever. They just don't care about nudity over there, but it blew my mind. She's like, I currently, according to IMDb, some user said she was wearing black underwear 
when she took it off initially. And then when she slipped in the cave, which may have been an actor error when they were running away from box, she was wearing green underwear instead. I'm like, first off, number one, why are you looking? And number two, why does it matter? You know, like, come on, bro. <laughs> Some pervert. Oh, that that's... Uh, mm, that's... <laughs> Like why 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 does the underwear bother bother people so much and why are they why are they pausing it and rewinding it like it's a basic instinct moment like i just don't understand uh, it doesn't make sense chris uh, people are strange people are but that's the internet for you it's filled with strange weirdos and two jackasses that make sci-fi podcasts <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's get into the legacy that logan's run has left behind so against its budget that we mentioned earlier it made 25 million dollars at the box office and it's actually credited for helping mgm to recover from debt during this period of time so pretty decent money maker in the mid 70s however the critical reception at the time was mixed uh, Roger Ebert gave it three stars. Uh, his This was before they were partners, but Gene Siskel gave it zero stars. So kind of across the board in terms of what the uh, critics at the time were saying. However, contemporary reviews of the film have been a bit more positive, and I think people are starting to recognize the impact in the fact that this film is actually really good. It uh, holds a 62% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and... Because Rolling Stone likes to throw out their their list of the best whatever they're looking at at the time, they ranked this as the 27th best um, science fiction film of the 1970s, and that list was out of 50 films. So right. a pretty middle of the pack for Rolling Stone. But again, it's Rolling Stone. Take your ranked take their ranked list for what you will. <laughs> Uh, was awarded Logan's Run was awarded a special achievement Oscar for its visual effects and rightfully so but it was also nominated for production design and cinematography so uh, pretty big awards uh, that it was nominated for definitely also won six Saturn awards uh, one for best sci-fi film best cinematography best art direction best set decoration Best costumes and best makeup. So effectively swept the major um, film awards at the Saturns that year. Uh, and in a bit of interesting news, this was made into a television show shortly after the release of the film. Now, this, this the show itself isn't infamous or it's not legendarily bad, but it just it didn't catch on with people. It was canceled after 14 episodes. So, <laughs> yes, it's it's funny in hindsight. I w- I think they were kind of hoping for it to last a bit longer. But how? But rumors have persisted since the mid 90s of a remake. But nothing's come of these. There's been several directors that have potentially um, signed on to make it, but nothing there. No actors have attached themselves. There's been no mentions of screenwriters. Um, Personally, I don't know if a remake would be good, mm-hmm. um, but maybe a, a mini series that's more faithful to the original source material would kind of be more in line with any sort of future plans. I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you there. I think this film would be fan 
fantastic. Logan's Run would be fantastic as a miniseries, like Westworld or something. Even a short, even HBO, like 10 episodes to flesh out the world a little bit more, make a nice ending, be more loyal to the novel. But I can't see the movie. It's just too, I think it's just too rich in details and character development that it would be wasted to do just like a two-hour flick with all the reasons that we've talked about today. So yeah, HBO, get on that and give us a producer's credit while you're at it. (laughs) Right? It's just crazy, though, how this film has just been lost in the shuffle. Like, not many people referenced it until modern times. Blows my mind. Yeah, I think hopefully that there's a... Hopefully, I mean, hopefully we can help get the word out and <laughs> tell people. I mean, because I certainly will if uh, anybody asks for recommendations. But I, uh, but I think now it's time to get into our rating for Logan's Run. Mm-hmm. So, on our unique scale for the podcast of wouldn't watch, uh, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party, what do you give to Logan's Run, Sean? Uh, for me, I would give Logan's Run a would own. Um, I don't think it is a perfect film due to kind of having an anticlimactic ending, uh, like we discussed with the villain, like the character, the Sandman getting killed and then the computer exploding, plus not really having a clear track at the end with the direction. It was a little off. Um, for me, that's why I don't think it is a perfect film where it would be a host of viewing party, but it is a very enjoyable film, great acting, great sets. If you want a slice of the seventies and kind of preemptive of how special effects have come to be and influence, I would say check out Logan's run. It's just such a great film. It's fun. It may take a couple tries. Like it said, you have to really focus and dig in, but it's it's good. It's a good, enjoyable, entertaining film that hopefully you'll learn and, you know, enjoy the slower films of the uh, yesteryear. So that's me. How about you? You know, I'm going to come in right with you and I'm going to call this a wood own as well. And I 100 percent agree with you um, that it's it's impossible to ignore like the, the pure 70s of this film. I mean, the special effects, the costumes, the sets, the the overall look of the film. And yes, the visual effects look like they're made in a garage by today's standards, but it definitely helps to, the, the, in using the real locations, it helps to ground the film. It's, it's well acted, it's well paced for its time, and even a casual viewer would be able to draw a lot of parallels to today's world. Um, but I also think it would be hard to convince a casual sci-fi fan to to just watch this movie on a lark or and do or to you would have to you'd have to do some convincing on somebody in order to get them to watch it so for that i would call logan's run a a solid wood own boom shakalaka baby (laughs) that's what i'm talking about (laughs) all right well good good work man let's get on to our uh next film i'm excited all right let's check let's do it (laughs) <laughs> so we're going to enlist the help of our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha, to help us pick our next film from a list of 118 films. And from that list, she has selected number 16. It is a film from 2002 
directed by Steven Spielberg and starring Tom Cruise, it is Minority Report. Oh, snap, baby. <laughs> Another Tom Cruise film. I'm excited to see this man run. All right, yeah, we're going to get a lot of Tom Cruise running in Minority Report, so <laughs> please watch and enjoy with us. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Force-Fed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the ForceFed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. Force-fed sci-fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.